Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about what to do when your piano parents don't want you to play games. You can find the article that goes along with this episode at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 168. Or if you're not a member, colorfulkeys.ie slash 168. Welcome back, beautiful teachers, and I hope you're having a fabulous week so far. And that maybe it hasn't included this particular issue that we're talking about today. We're talking about what you're supposed to do when your piano parents or your music parents come back to you and say, why are you spending so much time playing games? I don't want them to play games. Can't you just sit at the piano? Or what are they even learning here? You can't spend all this time having fun. Or I've heard this from one teacher that the parents asked if they could play games after the lesson time was over or add time onto the end of the lesson since they had spent it playing games. Oh gosh, we need to do some educating right here, and I'm hoping I'm going to help you do it. Now, if you're not in these shoes, if you haven't had a parent question you playing games before, then I still think this is going to be valuable for you, not only as future ammunition, I guess, in case a parent ever questions this, but to say to parents up front about the value of it, because if some parents are asking, it means more of them are thinking these thoughts in their head. And if you're not playing games at all yet, well then you need to check out some of the games we have. We have tons of games, of course, available inside the Vibrant Music Teaching membership. It's a big part of what we do. And you can go to vmt.ninja to find out more about that. But if you just want to dip your toe in the water, then go to the Colorful Geese blog and you'll see several free games there that you can test things out. Try the idea of teaching with games, see if you like it, and then come back to Vibrant Music Teaching when you want to do more and really focus on using games to their full potential in your studio. But we're talking about those teachers who are already using games, whose parents, the parents of your students, don't want them to, or at least some of them don't want them to, or you want to be prepared for those that have that opinion. So why do they not want you to play games? Here are the things they might be saying to your face or thinking 
behind your back in their head. Number one is that they might be worried their child isn't going to take music seriously. Some people think of education as something that needs to be serious in order to be valued by a child. And if they see games being played, they're thinking, oh, well, you're not treating music as education. And of course, we know that it is very valuable as part of the education system, as part of the curriculum, that it should be taught to all children, in my opinion. But if they have that view that education needs to be serious and somber, they're going to think that you're treating music not as education, but as very recreational. And that might be one of the concerns that they have. They might also be worried that their child isn't learning enough. Games might seem like just frivolous play and therefore they think that their child isn't learning. Of course, we know better, but we only know that because we have the background that we do. Or maybe they're simply worried that they're wasting their money. This could be connected to the other two or could just be separate. But you have to admit, when a parent sees their kiddo spending 10 minutes playing a game in a lesson with us and just laughing uproariously the whole time, yeah, some parents are going to look at that and say, awesome. But depending on their background and what they perceive in that situation and the learning that they see, they might think, I just paid so much money for them to spend 10 minutes sitting there giggling. I mean, a babysitter can do that for way cheaper, or I could do that at home. So I do think that it's very easy for us to look at these comments and think, oh my gosh, how dare they say this to me? How dare they question my teaching methods or nickel and dime me? But the truth is that everyone wants to get what they pay for. And if they feel that they're not, that's something we need to address and, I believe, educate them about the value of games so that they realize they are getting what they pay for in the best possible way. So if a parent has come to you with these concerns, you need to have the hard conversation. And all of these tips and ways of talking about using games are going to apply also to what I would call the soft conversation. And the soft conversation is the version of this chat that you have with every new student, every new parent when they join your studio. So keep that in mind as you go through here. It's a hard conversation when a parent has already come to you with concerns about this, but the same points can be covered with all new parents and should be covered with all new parents if games are a big part of your studio to head this off at the pass. So the first benefit I would share with parents about using games is that more movement equals better concentration for children and for adults, actually. So children are not meant to just sit there (laughs) and nor are adults, really. That's why standing desks have been gaining so much popularity in many areas with many of us working in office jobs. We're choosing to stand up all day instead of sit or do a mixture so that we're able to move a little bit more because we've seen how important this is for our health. And this is quadruply true for children. They need to move. And some schools are still very sedentary. So they've been sitting all day, maybe, with breaks. But yeah, spending a lot of their day sitting down in a chair and being told not to move. And then they come to a piano lesson straight after school and they're supposed to sit on a bench and not move or stand with their violin in hand and not move from one spot. That's just not going to happen. And it's not going to be the best environment for them to learn. Even the most obedient child 
and I've been guilty of this too, right? We have those kids who are very quiet and don't move about too much and don't seem to wriggle, and so we leave them on the bench for the full lesson. But even those children learn better and concentrate better if they move more regularly. So you can dive into scientific studies if you need to go this far with a parent, but often just explaining the movement addition that you're adding to the child's routine will make a lot more sense to them because you're mixing up the modes of movement. And we are going to talk in an upcoming episode about how to make games more active. So for those who have questions about, okay, well, they're moving off a bench and then they sit at a table and they play a game, that's not much movement. There are ways you can add that in when your child needs it, when your student needs it. So we will talk about that in an upcoming episode. But for now, it's normally enough for parents just to describe that movement consideration that you're putting into your lesson planning. And even for them to see that you have planned it, right? You're planning this out so that it makes sense for the child's learning at their stage of development. Another argument for games, for this hard conversation or the soft conversation when your student first joins, is that more fun equals more learning. And this might be a difficult one to swallow for those who do feel education should be very serious. So you might need to unpack this a little bit further. But the basic idea is that when we're having fun, we are more fully awake and engaged. It's much more easy for us to remember say, the story that was told in a comedy set versus a dry lecture about moths. Not for everyone, but for most of us. And maybe if you love moths and there were some moth-based puns thrown in there, that's going to bring that moth talk to life and you're going to remember that even better. But we remember the things that we're interested in. And kids are interested in games and having fun. Games have a magic ingredient beyond just this, though. When students play games to learn concepts, they often get to discover the answer rather than us telling them the answer. So this makes their learning that much stickier because they discover it themselves. It's not us saying, oh, a crescendo means this and it looks like that. It's about them actually discovering that through the game. Not all games work this way, but many of the games inside VMT are designed to work this way so that the child is discovering the answer through the game. And then there are other games that are reinforcement for that concept as well. And then the last argument I'll give you (laughs) to use, I don't want to say is ammunition. I may have used that word earlier. I'm not sure I like it. To use as candy, games candy for your parents, is that different perspectives lead to better retention. And this is probably the biggest one for me. So games are not just fun and they're not just a opportunity to move or get a brain break or anything like that. They also provide reinforcement of that concept or teaching of that concept in a different structure. If your student learns about, let's say crescendos again, right? So they learn about a crescendo in their piece and they learn about it in a game and they get to sing and experiment vocally with it and maybe they do a worksheet on it as well at home they are so much more likely to remember it than us saying four times or giving them four lectures or letting them play four pieces with a crescendo in it 
it brings it to life. And it's not only better remembered, it's more flexible knowledge. They understand that a crescendo is a crescendo is a crescendo. No matter what context we put it in, it stays the same. Now, crescendo is maybe not the best example here because it doesn't need to be that flexible. It's pretty understandable. But something like a music interval or a scale, key signature, any of those things, they are put in different contexts. And we need our student to understand that no matter where they are, they mean the same thing and to have that in-depth understanding of them. So there's your three arguments to use with your parents to persuade them that games are fantastic and valuable. It's about more movement, more fun and different perspectives. Now, to really drive this home, I believe that your parents need to see games in action and experience them themselves. So I would really recommend getting them involved, whether they have questions or not. Occasionally bring the parent into the lesson if you can. Maybe it's the final five or ten minutes of the lesson or the start of it would work well as well. Or the middle if you can, especially if you're teaching at students' homes. Invite them in and play a game together. Have your student be the director. They can teach the parent about the musical terms they need or the concepts, especially if the parent doesn't understand music themselves. And they can teach their sibling to play as well and they can all play together. The parent will get to experience, especially if you do this several times, not just once. The parent will get to experience how much that concept is sticking for the kiddo, how engaged they are, how much they're having fun while learning, and how much it sticks for them, the parent. If this is a new thing for them, how well do they remember it after the game versus if we just told them? It is so much easier to learn in that context and they will experience that if they play games as well. I highly suggest doing this in the lesson first, but if you've done that a few times, especially if you've done the same game a few times so that they can start to see the value of that repetition, Then lend them that game to take home. Start a games lending library if you don't have one already and lend it to the parent to take home and play as part of the homework. They'll get to get involved with their child's musical learning if they're not already sitting in on practice and that kind of thing. They'll get to further reinforce that at home and it's great for the student because you could replace a worksheet or some other theory work they were going to do at home with a game instead, which is going to be awesome. It's also just a great way to bring the family together, right? And get them involved in their child's music education, which is a wonderful bonding opportunity, as well as a wonderful opportunity to see the value of all that they're learning, not just through that game, but everything that's going on that you're teaching them. Okay, so with those arguments and that first-hand experience that you're giving parents, That should be enough. Now I'd like to remind you of something in case you're still having trouble with this or the idea of having that hard conversation is weighing heavy on you. And that is that you're the teacher. This parent hired you to teach their child because hopefully they actually want a teacher. (laughs) They don't want to do this job themselves. They don't think that they're going to do it better than you can. And You need to have faith in that fact and you need to have faith in your own training and your understanding of what works for students. Even if you're new, you know more than them about teaching. You really do. You're listening right now. You're obviously 
actively learning all the time about pedagogy and and teaching and everything else in your business. So it's not you going to them and saying, I'm the teacher and what I say goes because I said so, so there, right? I'm not saying we need to become that authoritarian or anything like that. We do need to have these discussions with parents and it's fair for them to ask questions. But in general, you can probably head off a lot of these things at the pass in several ways. So I want to go through a few mistakes that you might be making that this parent is seeing or interpreting on an intuitive or underground kind of level that's making them think that these games are not valuable or that you're not planning effectively or making the best use of the time. Mistake number one is rather obvious maybe, but that is that you might not be using pedagogically sound games. Maybe the games you are using are not effective. We need to check in with that. Whenever anyone questions us, we need to not just dig our heels in, but reassess, question what we're doing and see if we're still right based on the evidence in front of us. So are the games you're using sound? Do they cover the concept well? Do they waste time? Are they actually just a brain break? If you're using games from Vibrant Music Teaching, I hope you can see straight away that they are based on pedagogical concepts and they are built with a specific learning goal in mind. In fact, it's on the second page, right? It's listed right there for you. What's the learning objective? What are they learning here? And that's very clearly laid out. Now, I know you might not be a member and that's totally fine. And you might also be a member and still be using games from outside vibrant music teaching as well. Just be careful that you always know what the student is learning from the game, whether the extra elements and bits and pieces that are included are necessary for working towards that learning goal, and whether the game is age appropriate and easy for them to understand. It might be. There are lots of great sources out there, okay? But there are also lots of amateur sources out there where you're surfing Pinterest and you see something cool and you download it and it looks great and it does teach base E or whatever and that's great. But actually it takes 10 minutes to teach something that doesn't take that long to teach and it does that because the game instructions are so convoluted, the actual game play. Or there's a lot of distracting graphics that yeah, are kind of making it more fun for the kiddo, but not that much more fun. And they're very distracting and they're not focusing back on base E through those graphics, right? So you need to consider how much is just distraction within the game. There's a certain amount of dressing up we need to do. I'm not saying it should just be dry and very simple and to the point. But the on some level, the rules need to be quite simple in most cases. And if they are complex, there needs to be a musical reason for that, that actually the rules being that way will help them understand the concept at hand. Mistake number two is that you don't believe in games-based learning. Not fully, not enough. Now you're listening to this show and you've listened to this whole episode so far, so I think you probably do, but maybe not to your core. Maybe you still see games as a brain break. I've used that word a lot of time. And I actually have some sort of resources on vibrant music teaching that I do call a brain break because some, especially younger students, will need just a wiggle moment 
and that should be a moment though. It should be one to three minutes max. Most games on the site are not a brain break. That's not what I use them for, and I think that's selling games short if you see them that way. Equally, you're selling them short if you think of them as a reward. If they behave for the first 25 minutes, the last 5 minutes they get a game, or 40 minutes and 5 minutes, or whatever. Mm, I don't like seeing them that way either. Games for me are a core part of how I teach. And if you treat them as such, parents will start to see that they're integrated into the lesson. Whereas if they are an add-on, parents will feel that that time should be added on. Maybe not totally legitimately, I'm not saying that a fair comment, but I think you are not doing them justice if you see it as checking out time. Games should be about checking in, really learning something, and working towards your goals with that student. The final mistake that I often see, and this is a huge one, and why we needed to have that soft conversation earlier, is that you're not attracting the right piano families. If you are teaching with pedagogically sound games and you are planning them to a T and they're perfectly integrated into your lesson plans and it really solidifies student learning and it is wonderful, but parents, loads of parents in your studio are still objecting to them, maybe those aren't the right parents. So there are two things I believe that contribute to me not attracting the wrong parents in my studio. Sorry for the double negative there. But number one is my website, and number two is the first meeting, or the first phone call, or the first email. On my website, if you go there, you're welcome to go there at any time. It's just the colorfulkeys.ae slide. If you go to the lesson side of things, you can click the link over there. You'll see how it's laid out. I'm never claiming it's a perfect website. Sometimes I don't pay enough attention to it versus all the other stuff I do online. But what it does make clear is that lessons here about games, fun, creativity, color everywhere, and yeah, maybe a bit wacky. And so parents who arrive on my site who want a very classical education with a strong exam focus, very competitive environment, very traditional, or are mostly in it for academic gains, like they want to have that particular level of piano on their CV for their child or whatever, they arrive there and say, oh, not for me. And they leave. And that's a good thing. I want them to leave. I don't want emails from these parents. Not because I don't like them or I don't value their goals for their child. It's just not what I do. There are other great studios in the area with that focus. I mean, there are way more studios with that focus than with the creative focus where I live. So. If parents arrive and they say, ooh, yikes, games, improvisation, big messy concert videos, and they leave, that is great. That's a good thing. And then when I have those first conversations with these parents, emails about how we do things, if that comes up, or that first meeting I have with prospective families, that's when I also explain all of this. And at that first meeting, I explain it whether they ask me about it or not whether they seem to already kind of know this or not, I explain. So you may have seen on the site, we learn this way and that way, and here's our games library, and here's all the things we do to make this fun. So it's not me saying, hey, watch out, we learn through games here. It's me 
explaining how awesome it is, right? Because I assume they're already on board, and they already are. And if they're not, a lot of the time they just say, oh wow, I didn't realise that. That's awesome. Wouldn't you love to learn through games, Susie? And Susie says, yeah! That's my best five-year-old voice. So, if you feel you are not attracting the right piano families, think about the message that you're putting out there. See if you can adjust it. Because it is not worth filling your studio fast if people go in one door and out the other just as quick as they came in. We are in a retention business. And although at the very start of your teaching journey, you may feel like, oh, it is so hard to fill my studio. And I totally sympathize. And it is in many areas. It is hard to fill those spots. And it's hard financially. But you need to put the right message out there because once your studio is full, it's much easier for it to stay that way. And you really only need 20 to 30 students in most cases. So once you fill your studio, you want those people to stick around for the long term. And the people that will stick around are the ones that join because they want exactly what you offer, games and all. Your one thing of the week this week is to write down three more reasons why you use games or why you want to use games in your studio. I want you to write that on a post-it note. This is your homework. Write it on a post-it note, stick it on the fridge, and then maybe even read it to yourself each day if you need some extra reinforcement. I would love to hear what you write on your post-it notes, so let me know in the comments for this episode. It's at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 168 or colorfulkeys.ie slash 168. And you can also catch me inside the Vibrant Music Studio Teachers Facebook group or on Instagram. I'd love to chat to you anywhere I hang out online. I'll see you there. Vibrant Music Teaching membership costs less than the price of one lesson each month. That is totally worth it for all of the courses, games, resources, downloadables, printables that you can get access to as a member, as well as the fabulous community support you'll find inside. Go to vmt.ninja and become part of the revolution. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.